welcome to this special ProPass webinar series. We have started a collaboration with ProPass Consortium and are publishing their webinars in podcast format so more people can benefit from their useful content. In short, ProPass is an international research collaboration platform of cohorts using Taiwan accelerometry to explore the effects of physical activity, posture, and sleep patterns on a wide range of health outcomes. Without further ado, let's jump to ProPass webinar. And it's part of the standards that Tessa mentioned. It's not only standards, how to collect the data, but how to really make them comparable across time. Across time. So shall we go back to what uh, Jason alluded to previously? Going to the lowest denominator, steps, the simplest metric, the easiest to measure, perhaps. Because if we keep switching algorithms over time on about intensities and all sorts of other aspects of physical activity that could be hugely problematic. Before Andreas, I would like to ask Stephanie, always having uh, health surveillance in mind, what can we learn? What could global surveillance learn from Canada? Because you've been doing it for a few years now. Is it, it's over a decade, if I remember well? Yes, it is. So the CHMS is in 2007, they started using the Actical accelerometer. Yeah. And so it's been, it's been a long time. And so we're, we're actually doing some work again, looking at trends using different metrics right now, but it has certainly given a glimpse into trends in Canada and looking at physical activity levels and, and also other metrics such as sedentary behavior. So we've, I've done a lot of work on sedentary behavior surveillance. And interestingly enough, like when we look at the accelerometry data, it looks fairly stable across um, population groups. Um, the things with the accelerometer uh, data, though, in the Canadian Health Measures Survey, it's a, it's a nationally representative survey, but it is much smaller than the sister survey, the Canadian Community Health Survey, which is more uh, questionnaire-based. Um, so the CHMS is, uh, because it collects all these physical measures, it is a smaller sample size, and we can't use it to look at subpopulations, so provincial and territory estimates. We have to use the CCHS for that. And so that's the thing with surveillance and monitors is that they are really time and cost intensive. And so while, you know, it they do um, augment or provide additional information that we don't get from the questionnaires, they are usually on a smaller sample that could potentially bring its biases with it. Um, but they are also really intensive to analyze and to get that data. And so I don't think that, you know, we, we need to remember that when, when setting up these like international surveillance systems, just the scope of the, the infrastructure that's required to set them up, to establish how we're going to analyze these data, because the, it, the data files themselves are massive as well. And so to be able to look at, you know, a per minute uh, amount of data uh, on, and on thousands and thousands of individuals requires huge infrastructure in terms of storage of the data as well. But the advantage, if you collect the raw signal, is that you can always go back to historical data and reprocess them with a new algorithm. So, so that perhaps overcomes the problem of algorithms and standards improving over time. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. Very useful lessons uh, from Canada. Andreas and uh, then Aiden. Yeah, <clears throat> thank you. Also, you were present at yesterday about a presentation from Christina in uh, using the Moltus sense system, 
where we have an infrastructure now, which means it's very efficient, feasible to do this type of data collection. Um, and I think it will just be more and more of those type of infrastructure with data, auto, fully automated analysis to get the information, feedback straight on, right? But I think it also, what Christina showed yesterday was the big issue is about how to reach low socioeconomic groups. So we don't already measure on the rich and the higher socioeconomic groups, but how to reach those in, in the lower socioeconomic groups. And I think they're also, I think the variables, the, the commercial variables might, might help us because they are really good, right? With respect to making it should be attractive. It should be valuable. It should be promoting them to have it. And I don't know if you had funding, so they, those not having that much of an income that they actually might get the sensor or the wearable or how to be able to reach those groups. I think that's the, I think that's the, the main issues we are having with respect to how to analyze it and infrastructure. I think we can handle that quite, quite in a quite long way. Thank you, Andreas. Um, so I've probably got more of a question than a comment then. So it's probably a question to either Tessa or Stephanie then. So I can see, yeah, we definitely want to have a nice representative sampling in various countries. Um, very soon, I would maybe argue as soon as possible, we should be incorporating device-based measurements in lots of countries. I was quite struck by Tim's presentation beforehand. I think that 90% of the population plus have got a smartphone. And obviously Manus has talked about STEM. Might there be opportunities to piggyback and talk of smartphone measurements? And of course, you know, it's a noisy, messy measurement, but do it at large scale and, and maybe looking at trends over time. It could, could it perhaps be useful for surveillance? I'm wondering aloud. Tessa, that's for you. Thank you. I'll go to Aidan's question first and then maybe see if I remember what I was going to say otherwise. But I think it's really interesting you said that, Aidan, because I had exactly the same thoughts back at that presentation. I think from, from my perspective, but I'm happy to be corrected, I think we need to remember that when we talk about consumer wearables and the similarities between activity trackers that we ran the risks and how similar they are to the research grade devices and how, and there are some, oh, the limitations and the differences have been pointed out to us. But I think we need to make sure that we don't carry all those advantages over to smartphones because they're not always there. People wear their smartphones in very different ways. It's not a 24 hour measure and people wear them in different positions a lot of the time. And so whilst I think there is a huge opportunity with them, I think we need to be aware that there may be further barriers to using smartphones, particularly when representativeness, it's not just who's, where, who's collecting the data. We may overcome that with smartphones, but we may not pick up their most representative parts of the day. It may be that when, you know, we're only picking up the active part if people want to measure their steps or this kind of thing. But I think we do need to be aware of those limitations, but it's not to say it can't happen, but I don't think it's a straight transfer across and I think the other thing I was going to say relative to the um, point Andreas made about using consumer wearables and surveillance, I think one of the, uh, and the sort of attractiveness to learning maybe less affluent groups or just harder to reach group. I think we need to remember that with surveillance, we, we really don't want to affect people's activity levels. And these devices are behavior change devices and that they're providing feedback to change behavior. And that really is a problem for surveillance. So. Is it the behavior change features that are making it attractive? In which case, is that a problem for surveillance use? And do we kind of need to cover that up? I don't know, but I think that's just one of the issues around consumer wearables. It's not insurmountable, but just something we do need to consider. Thank you. 
Stephanie, and then we'll be wrapping up the surveillance unit. We'll be moving on to primary care, wearables in primary care in uh, healthcare systems. Stephanie. I was just going to, yeah, also echo what Tessa just said at the end there with the, the idea of reactivity to the monitors and the idea of the research grade accelerometers, the octographs, the octocals, they can't get any information from those devices while they're wearing them. And oftentimes we even do like in clinical research, when I was working as postdoc, we often did the chop off the first and last day, because when we actually look at the data, they usually are quite, they are higher um, than the in-between days. And it often is because people are, you know, conscious that they start wearing it and then conscious that they have to return it. And so just to keep that in mind with surveillance, these, these wearables, I think there is an, an element of reactivity and there's also more of an element of wear time. So when people are wearing them, how long, how long are the battery lasts? How long do the battery last? I know when we were working in cardiovascular research, that was a huge challenge because patients to add something else on top of their daily lives where they're, you know, stressed to add that they also have to charge their device every day or every, you know, couple of days, depending on when we want them to wear it was an added stress. And so that certainly is a challenge also with using the wearable devices from a surveillance perspective, that standardized wear time is really important uh, for surveillance. So lots of challenges with whether we go down research grade trackers or the consumer trackers. There's no, it sounds like there's no perfect solution. Even smartphones seem to have some advantages in terms of representativeness, but there is no, certainly there's no solution that stands out for global surveillance. I would like to now... So we discussed, uh, we said before that the, the end, the final, the, the ultimate goal, why we're doing all sorts of research from surveillance to cohort research to interventions is to find ways to help the population be more physically active with a view to ideally preventing disease through better sleep, through better physical activity, improved physical activity and less through behavior. Now, primary care. All of us operate in countries with universal healthcare systems. Am I right? Yes. Canada, Denmark, UK, Australia. Tim Chico drew a very grim picture of NHS and the future of integration of wearables in cardiology care in the first instance, but I believe that Tim's perspective was applicable to the whole NHS. Now, here in Australia, for example, it's slightly different. It's not that wearables are everywhere in primary care, but you see a few practices. They have the, they have the independence and the autonomy. And a few practices, for example, have adopted Fitbit's Connect ecosystem, which allows them to monitor uh, physical activity via centrally, uh, via uh, GP practice uh, of uh, patients who own such devices or in some cases, fewer cases, uh, patients are given devices. Um, Mark, I would like to ask you, the, the, the grim picture that uh, uh, HS seems to, to present at this point in time, what do you think would be the practical steps towards start integrating wearables in primary care with a view to preventing, to increasing, improving behaviors to prevent chronic disease, not communicable disease? Yeah, and these, those practical barriers shouldn't be minimized in, in, in that way. But that's the case for a lot of medical devices in, in healthcare. There's quite a number of hurdles, and most of which take so long to come over that to overcome that it's not worth implementing the device in the end because the devices have changed considerably. Um, so that's, that's a particular burden. 
I, in my introduction, I should have also, I, I was remiss in noting that I was invited partly because I'm a member of the Cancer Research UK People and Populations Panel. And so one of the things that uh, we're particularly struck by was just activity as a priority for prevention and, and particular populations uh, is the uh, low quality evidence we have around linking trans activity to uh, the wide range of cancers. There's pretty good evidence on a limited range of cancers. Uh, and it's a bit kind of uh, moderate level evidence and not overwhelming associations uh, in certain cancers. That's probably because of the nature of the instruments we've used to measure. So it's a sort of a noise in, noise out type phenomenon. Um, and so I think the first thing we have to do is to, you know, get a bit more clever in our epidemiology around a broader range of diseases and a bit more stronger level evidence for the risk factors. And then from that, determine what the minimally, minimally clinically important differences uh, in terms of activity change using wearables of whatever kind we will want to use, because that provides an intermediate target for either disease prevention or disease treatment. We would do that as par for the course in all of our kind of medical type interventions um, where activity is the outcome. Uh, I think the other thing is we need to make a much stronger case around the health economics of uh, investing in prevention. Uh, we know in the UK that uh, preventive services get a really small portion of the overall healthcare budget. And there's a lot of political lobbying to be done. And we do around further investment in that. And part of that's around health economics. And I think if, if I'm you know speaking in broad terms, the information we can get from wearables will give us much more refined understanding of the associations and the potential cost savings of intervention. Uh, the third point uh, I'll make then, and I'll, I'll finish with this one, is around our education of our clinical uh, colleagues. So I'm a non-clinician of sort of behavioral or physical activity scientist working in a clinical medical school teaching, you know, the medical pathway. Uh, and I noticed this on funding panels. I noticed it in, in under, undergrad students. I noticed clinical colleagues that they have a fairly crude understanding of what physical activity is uh, and what physical activity change involves largely around moderate or high intensity exercise. So kind of limited view as to what the potential behaviors we're trying to change are. And so I think there's a lot of education to be done around not just the benefits, like everybody knows just activities, what kind of activity and for whom. So my own area of, of older adults where, you know, we, we see uh, clinicians prescribing or certainly encouraging, recommending older adults take part in, you know, unnecessarily vigorous activity when they're previously inactive. Now, I'm not saying we don't work up towards that, but I think it's, it's been able to uh, train and teach our clinical colleagues as to how to both counsel individuals around just activity change and behavior change in general. And that takes a lot of time, both in training. So most medical courses have uh, hours, not days, devoted to uh, behavior change. Um, you know, I taught, the course I taught, we literally got three hours actually across a five-year course to teach behavior change, not just with activity, but the psychology of behavior change. And really that's almost redundant. It know, sounds like, it sounds like a, a systemic issue here. It's a, a systemic issue around physical activity and lifestyle in general, as opposed to whether we use wearables or not in primary care. Yeah, I, I think, I think that's the start point is that that system problem that starts with us about making, giving better quality evidence to prove that it's a, it's a good, uh, you know, a, a stable biomarker for disease prediction or prevention. Thank you, Mark. Um, 
Is the uh, real reality in uh, Nordic countries different in Finland or Denmark, Andreas and Sari? Is there any more integration of wearable devices or smartphone-based interventions, technology-based interventions for physical activity in uh, primary care? Yeah, well, I mean, I can take a start and Andreas then comments on how it is in Denmark. It is not incorporated in a in a wide wide range, but I'm thinking like in in rehabilitation, it is people are using it very widely, and and I I'm thinking regarding Mark's comment that in the hospitals and the primary care we have the specialists for physical activity, the, the physiotherapists. So I think they could be used more here with to, to help the physicians also to to you know. In, in in recommending and, and giving guidance to physical activity. So that, that is something that we need the uh, collaboration between the between the different professionals. And and I think in the in the rehabilitation we see that it's it's actually these wearables are really great tools and there you you really engage the patients to their own treatment. So they can they feel that they are doing something about it and, and they can measure it. So in, 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 in a case where you have a certain condition that you really have motivation to improve, so then, then these kind of devices where you can get feedback and you get the measurements and how you make progress, I think they are really valuable. Thank you. Uh, Andreas, in Denmark, is, are things different? Or, or Norway, because you are representing two countries, uh, essentially? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think it's very much different. I've been involved in some projects respect to implementing mobile phone instruments respect to low back pain in general practice. And that's, that's a shown really positive. But I think in the end, we know we need to have more studies uh, showing the cost, cost, cost benefit of using these type of devices in, in general practice. So I think that's, that's what we need more of to, to document and give evidence about that is actually improving behaviors. Thank changing you. behaviors. Thank you. Uh, Aiden. It, it was just, I guess, to reiterate support then for what Tim said earlier, I think we need high quality randomized control trials of devices and primary care, I think is quite a good area to look at that. I often think it's quite interesting then, for example, the Q-risk score for cardiovascular disease or even the score in, in European context. To my knowledge, there's been no randomized control trials actually showing the use of those scores actually does help improve outcomes. Perhaps as an opportunity for us in the physical activity or device community then to really like lead the way across biomedicine and to really embrace conducting some good high quality RCTs in this space and ideally looking at some hard clinical endpoints as well. Thank you. And uh, Jason? So, so thank you. It's been a fascinating discussion. To me, there's maybe three different reasons why someone might use a device in primary care. So one is to get data for epidemiologies. So you can, your new risk prediction model might be able to incorporate physical activity. You need to collect it in, in routine to do that. So that's one reason. Another reason is the, the reason that Tim talked about to try and help the clinician diagnose whether a patient is sick or likely to get sick. And then the third reason is you might help change their behavior to make it make them do, do something or benefit their health. So I think we can make a case for the first two quite easily. I think for the third one, I think we need better evidence 
that giving someone a device will change their behavior long-term. And I don't think we have that. We get this reactivity initially that everyone will increase their activity for four weeks to months. We see that with almost anything, but I think we've got pretty much zero data to say giving someone a device means they'll be more active two years down the line. And I think we need to do trials on that. And I think it's naive to think just giving someone a device will do that. I think we need to work out how to have the device within a behavior change package that supports people to become more active if that's our goal. There's good reasons to do it just on for the epidemiology and risk prediction and all that. But if one do behavior change, just giving people a device, I don't think will do it on its own. A support system, ideally involving humans, not only AI. <laughs> well, we can give a good trial. So you can randomize people to yeah. device so plus an AI-based support system, device plus a human-based support system, look at the effectiveness and the cost effectiveness, because it might be the AI system is half as good, but it costs a tenth as much. So you're better off doing that. So, so, so I think we need to do trials. I, I think we just don't know at the moment. I think you, you made an amazing, incredible point, uh, Jason, which is that the device itself is not necessarily an intervention. It's a component of an intervention. It's a component of behavioral cha change. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.